Welcome to the Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Ravi Gupta, and today we begin with a mixture of history and literature. So let's take it back to the 16th century England to Robert Bolt's brilliant play, A Man for All Seasons. And at the center of that story is Sir Thomas More, who is a man of unwavering principles. And in a pivotal exchange, Moore finds himself in a heated debate with William Roper, who's his idealistic son-in-law. And they're debating whether to bend the rules to go after evil. And Moore would not bend the rules. But his son-in-law, William, felt differently. He said, so now you give the devil the benefit of the law, sir? Thomas Moore said, yes. What would you do? Cut a great road through the law to get after the devil? William Roper said, yes, I'd cut down every law in England to do that. And Sir Thomas More said, oh, and when the last law was down and the devil turned around on you, where would you hide, Roper, the laws all being flat? If you cut them down and if you're just the man to do it, do you think you really could stand upright in the winds that would blow then? I think about this story because in New York last week, Judge Arthur Orgeron ordered Trump to pay more than $350 million in a civil fraud judgment for inflating the value of his real estate holdings. Uh, and the case was brought by Attorney General Letitia James. And this is one of these moments where we really need to think straight and think about, are we really applying the law equally? And I wrote about this two years ago, and I had issues with James from the get-go on this case, because when she was running for Attorney General in 2018, she gave an interview in which she said, quote, the President of the United States has to worry about three things, Mueller, Cohen, and Tish James. We're all closing in on him. And then in her victory speech in November 2018, she said the following. She said, New Yorkers, we could spot a con man. We could spot a carnival barker. I will shine a light into every corner of his real estate dealings and every dealing. So James was promising before she ran. She's basically running for office in a state that hates Trump on the promise that she'd go after Trump. Then in her victory speech, she said, I'm going to make good on that promise. And this is what I wrote in 2022. I said, consider this hypothetical image. Imagine a Republican candidate for attorney general in Arkansas running on the platform to lock up the Clintons, promising to shine a light on every aspect of the finances of the Clinton Foundation and Clinton Library and the committee to reopen the Whitewater investigation. Now, imagine that this candidate won and refused to recuse himself and publicly, gleefully shared each triumphant step of the investigation. This is essentially what has happened now. Two years later, James won an unprecedented judgment, has been gleefully cheering it on. You can get any charge to stick on Trump in a, with a Manhattan jury, I promise you. I lived there for many, many years. And so you have to be careful with that power. When all the politics are in favor of you bringing a case and you ran for office promising that you'd bring that case, you should recuse yourself. I said the same thing about Alvin Bragg. I said the same thing about Tish James. And in the piece that I described, I talked about Matthew Whitaker, who became the acting attorney general after making pretty aggressive points about the Mueller investigation. I said that he should have recused himself. You know, Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi called on him to recuse himself. He didn't. Bill Barr made similar statements about the Mueller investigation. He didn't recuse himself. And I said the same thing back then, that those folks should have recused himself. James should have recused herself. But it gets much worse. So this law, which is New York statute, Executive Law 6312, that was brought against Trump is laughably vague. There was a great article in the Wall Street Journal op-ed pages by a New York law professor, Stephen M. Cohen, which he talked about. This law is weird. 
he said that uh, James applied the law properly, but the law it has a problem. It uh, has a couple problems, actually. One is there is uh, no materiality needed, meaning that Trump's statements uh, when he inflated his assets didn't need to be relied upon. And it didn't matter whether Trump actually misled his bankers. Uh, and essentially what Cohen said is this was a transaction between sophisticated parties who knew what they were doing, and nobody really lost out on these transactions. This is what he said, quote, um, he said, first of all, actually, before I get to this quote, he said that he thought that the law was actually applied properly. So he didn't say that there was like, this was extra legal or anything like that. But he said, quote, but it's worth considering whether in the quest to get Mr. Trump, many of the public officials may be pressing the law in ways that will outlive the cases against the former president. I don't believe that the attorney general case is at odds with the law as it presents as it exists in New York. But I do question whether there is a compelling policy rationale that supports using a consumer-friendly statute, a consumer fraud statute, in situations in which there was no loss and where materiality is deemed irrelevant. Uh, this is a, just a strange, strange case, right? So this law again didn't require that Trump intended to defraud anyone or that anyone lost money. The AP found that of the twelve cases that were brought under this law since its adoption in 1956. Uh, in which significant penalties were imposed. The case against Trump was the only one without an alleged victim or financial loss. And this is a quote from uh, Jeb Bush's piece in the Wall Street Journal earlier this week. He said, bankers from Deutsche Bank, which lent money to Mr. Trump, testified that they were satisfied with having done so, given they were paid back on time and with interest. They also testified that they were uncertain whether the alleged exaggerations would have affected the terms of the loans to Mr. Trump, a key part of uh, Ms. James's case. Since there were no victims, the state will collect the damages. So the state of New York is collecting this $355 plus million. They're also imposed like, significant restraints on Trump. Now, the, the idea of victimless crimes is a tough area of law, right? So let's pretend for a second that we all stipulate that Trump broke the law, which it seems like he did, and that some penalties should be imposed. The idea that $355 million for a victimless crime in which the the only possible victim, which is Deutsche Bank, got up and said, yeah, no problem here, doesn't mean they should be allowed to continue to do it. There should be some penalty here, probably, right? But $355 million, this seems like it's a political, you know, to, to use Trump's words, I hate to say it, this does feel like it's a bit of a witch hunt. And this is a problem because it undermines some of the other cases that are going on, which I've been on record saying are very strong. The documents case, the January 6th case, the case in Georgia uh, over Trump's role to overturn the election. Those seem pretty airtight to me. And when we bring these dumb cases and do it in such a blatantly political matter, it is the equivalent, right, of what Sir Thomas More was warning against, right? If we if we use the statutes in these ways, at some point you're going to turn around and all the laws will have been mowed down, right? And you won't have the protection of the law anymore. So we have to fight this stuff correctly and ethically. So that's one uh, sort of depressing note. A second sort of depressing legal note here is that on the Hunter Biden front, the Republicans' main witness, which I can't even believe this is the guy's real name, but his, his name was Alexander Smirnov. Uh, this guy who apparently was testifying as a confidential witness, he uh, has admitted uh, that he lied to the FBI. And now the FBI has said that um, this gentleman, Mr. Smirnov, has said that he was working with Russian intelligence 
And he says that officials with Russian intelligence were involved in passing on the story about younger Biden and that it was false. And so this was like a huge part of the Republican case against Joe Biden. Basically, they're saying that like somehow Joe Biden profited from Hunter Biden's dealings and Jim Jordan, James Comer, Chuck Grassley, tons of high profile Republicans were saying this was a credible witness and this was the sort of smoking gun that they had uh, to press Joe Biden. This is notable beyond Hunter Biden and Joe Biden. This is the Russians planting a story in the United States and getting high profile Republicans in our political life to parrot that story. So they've infiltrated our politics. And this isn't the first time. I know that there's, you know, people out there like Glenn, Glenn Greenwald and Tybee are fond of saying that, you know, Russia Gate is a hoax. And they're right to point out journalists who overstated the evidence on things like the Steele dossier and the P tape and all that. But I think there's this revisionism out there that somehow Russia, that there isn't a Russia gate. The Republican-led Senate Intelligence Committee released a five-volume report under the leadership of Marco Rubio. So under Republican leadership, and Burr had been there previous to him leading this committee. And Marco Rubio said at the time, no probe into this matter has been more exhaustive. In volume one, they said, quote, an unprecedented level of activity against state election infrastructure was perpetrated by the Russian intelligence in 2016. The activity occurred in 50 states, all 50 states, and is thought by many officials and experts to have been a trial run to probe American defenses and identify weaknesses in the back end apparatus, voter registration operations, state local election databases, electronic poll books, and other equipment of state election systems. The report warned that the U.S. remained vulnerable heading into the 2020 election. They also had a volume two, which talked about how Russia was trying to use social media to help Donald Trump and harm Hillary Clinton. Uh, Donald Trump obviously, you know, has said many weird things about Russia, and including when he said that he uh, encouraged uh, Russia to attack non-paying or underpaying NATO members just last week. He also said back in that campaign, if you don't remember, like there's all this idea of like what was happening behind the scenes with Trump. You just listen to his words. He said during that 2016 campaign, Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. I think you'll be rewarded mightily by our press. So my feeling is there is a Russia gate. It wasn't everything the Steele dossier said it was. There hasn't been a P-tape, but there is a strange connection between Trump and Russia. It could be because he admires dictators. It could be because of something else. Either way, it's a problem because Russia is, you know, been successfully infiltrating our elections. They just, you know, showed that they can infiltrate the Republican Party relatively easily. Uh, they also showed that they have useful idiots like Tucker Carlson who are willing to parrot this sort of Kremlin line. Ronald Reagan, you know, would be, is probably rolling over in his grave over this. And I think this is a much bigger story than the media is letting in on. And I think in part, the media has been cowed by uh, the criticism over their previous Russia coverage. But I think this is a huge deal when a foreign adversary has been able to so successfully mess with our politics. I think this is a huge, huge deal. So let me empty a couple other items in my notebook. NVIDIA, so the big chip maker, the maker of GPUs, their shares surged 13% in after-hours trading yesterday after the company reported better-than-expected fourth-quarter earnings of $22 billion, which is a 265% increase from the same period last year. They are the world's most valuable chip company, one of the most valuable companies, period, in the world. And I was just listening to you yesterday uh, a podcast from Mark Andreessen and Ben Horowitz. And Andreessen was saying that 
you know, this is Andreessen Horowitz, one of the big uh, venture capital firms. And they were saying that they have all these hot AI startups and the GPU capacity is the rate limiter. So they're basically saying all of these companies with great ideas are just waiting for computing capacity so that they could push those ideas. And they were essentially saying that there's all this latent power of AI that we haven't even seen yet. And as the, you know, companies like NVIDIA, Taiwan Semiconductor, AMD, churn out more and more computing power, this latent power of AI is going to explode onto the scene. So essentially saying you haven't seen nothing yet on the AI front, which is quite something to ponder. So it's basically saying that the innovations are ready here on AI, and it's just a question of getting the computer power set up to successfully harness that power. That is a wild thing to contemplate. The other notable thing here is that there are these stocks, they call the Magnificent Seven, Alphabet, Amazon, Apple, Meta, uh, Microsoft, NVIDIA, and Tesla. These stocks, if you look at just 2023, so not the, the incredible growth that we've already seen in the past month and a half, but just 2023, those seven stocks contributed roughly 67% of the S&P 500 returns in 2023. So seven stocks, 67% of the S&P 500. Those stocks now make up 28% of the total uh, market cap of the S&P 500, which is up from 13% a decade earlier. This is incredible. There is a, there's more concentration now uh, than there ever has been in history. And Morningstar had a, an interesting data point, which showed that 74% of US large cap blend managers, which essentially are, are you know managers of funds who have a mixture of growth and value stocks under their management, um, 74% of those managers underperformed the S&P 500 last year. So they're underperforming. So these people who, you know, this gets to what we talked about with Bob Copeland on the book about Dalio, a lot of these managers, and this is just one particular type of manager, but a lot of this data is true across the board. You know, you're better off just under the current dynamics, putting your money in the S&P 500 and historically, not necessarily looking forward, but you would have been better off just putting it in seven of the, the largest stocks in the market. Uh, in the decade ending in 2023, you know, those blend managers that I talked about, 90 plus percent of them underperformed their benchmarks. So these folks are just not performing well. And you may say, well, they're just useless. Well, GMO, uh, one of my favorite sort of fund managers, uh, they put out a lot of interesting research. We'll, we'll put this piece in the show notes. They ran a model saying, well, okay, like let's create a hypothetical excellent trader, like an excellent fund manager. And then run them through the past decade saying like, all right, if you would have been exceptional top 10% trader or something like that, and we compare you to the past 10 years of the S&P 500, that exceptional trader would have still lost, right? Never mind comparing that person against the Magnificent Seven. So uh, what GMO said is for most of history, biasing portfolios against the very largest stocks was wise strategy because they had an anti-value tilt, those stocks, like they were essentially like, uh, they had bad PE ratios. But over the last decades, being biased against the very large stocks has been a disaster, they said. And uh, what's interesting, and you know, when you talk about the anti-value tilt, in 2013, Apple, Google, and Microsoft had a price to earnings ratio of 15 times, right? 15x. That was 25% below the market. So there are actually value stocks at the period of time. That's now flipped. So it's now 37 
versus 25 PE ratios, meaning that the the Apple, Google, and Microsoft could potentially be overvalued. But as GMO said, uh, those companies have the deepest of deep moats. And if you listen to um, you know GMO head Jeremy Grantham talk about this uh, when he does interviews on Bloomberg, et cetera, he says you know traditionally because he's a numbers guy, he looks historically and says by any measure these are either overvalued and you never want to bet on the the largest stocks in the S&P 500 or NASDAQ or the Dow. But he says that what's changed recently is the combination of the factors of you know, exponential technologies combined with a lack of antitrust enforcement and maybe even add in the fact that a lot of these companies are sitting on huge cash stockpiles and are buying up their competition at record rates, which is related obviously to the antitrust points. And so he's saying, I'm not sure I would bet against those companies. They, you know, one, you know, astute observers will note that if you're looking for reasons other than the PE ratios to say that these companies could be vulnerable, uh, the average of the Magnificent Seven has about a 20% exposure to China and Taiwan. And, and China looks headed towards some kind of massive, massive recession, depression event. Uh, never mind any geopolitical issues that could happen between those two countries. So if you're looking for vulnerability, that's where it would come from. But just a, a incredible story and one to keep an eye on that when you're talking about concentration of power, wealth, et cetera. You know, there's this Moses Naim book that I know that Mark Zuckerberg is fond of, which essentially says that the new power is concentrated in non-state actors. This is definitely evidence for that. Uh, a couple of I- other items that are sitting in my notebook. You know, we talked about Dartmouth last week, bringing back standardized tests. It was just announced Yale University announced that they're going to require standardized test scores for admissions for students entering in the fall of 2025. This is now the second Ivy League school, obviously after Dartmouth, to bring back tests after walking away from them during the COVID pandemic. And what's interesting is that Yale officials said in their announcement that the shift to test optional policies had harmed low-income families potentially whose test scores would have helped their chances. So this is something obviously we have been saying for a while here on this podcast. Uh, Another uh, item of note, the Supreme Court announced Tuesday that it is not going to hear a case challenging the constitutionality of a highly selective Virginia high school's admissions policies, uh, which were challenged on the grounds that they discriminated against Asian-American students this is Thomas Jefferson High School. We did a segment on this back in the day. We'll put that in the show notes. This was fascinating because I could have seen this gone either way. We actually did a segment on it. And then we also did a separate segment where I talked to Jenny Sue Gerson recently after the affirmative action case in the Supreme Court. Jenny Sue Gerson is a Harvard Law professor who, you know, she and I were talking about what would this mean actually for Thomas Jefferson High School. She felt that this Thomas Jefferson High School's practices would hold. I was more skeptical. She was right. And these are these are billed as seemingly race neutral policies that have a a racially skewed I don't know if to use the right word effect in practice. So basically, what what Thomas Jefferson High School did was they looked at their and this is sort of in the post George Floyd environment. They looked at their student body and it was seventy one percent Asian American, three percent Hispanic, two percent Black, and this was you know there's a lot of debate discussion, the school board, you know, brought Ibram Kendi in and all this kind of stuff. And they they started to change their policies to try to tilt it and make, create more geographic diversity. So it wasn't just coming from a handful of middle schools that had a lot of Asian American students in it. So they created more qualitative metrics. They created weighting by geographic 
area. Uh, they also uh, created what were called experience factors, like whether kids came from low-income families and whether they're English language learners, had special education plans, et cetera. So a coalition uh, of families challenged this law because after the law went into effect, the proportion of Asian American families went down. It, I mean, it didn't go down seismically. It went down to 62%. But you know, obviously, if you're in the 10% of students who lost a seat, that's a big deal to you. Black students went up to 19%, up from 2%, and Hispanic students went up to 7%, up from 3%. So the Supreme Court decided not to hear this challenge, which essentially means that this change in practice is on the books. And this is significant because this points the way for institutions who want to get around the affirmative action ruling, essentially want to still have racial preferences without making them explicitly racial and so in this case, this is what you can do. You can you can have geographic preferences. You can take into account uh, where families come from. You can take into account which language they speak. So you can come up with all sorts of ways to create the student body that you want. This is notable. In a dissent, uh, Justice Alito and Thomas said that the Supreme Court should have heard the case. They said that letting the appeals court decision stand would be akin to agreeing that, quote, intentional racial discrimination is constitutional as long as it's not too severe. So that's a big deal, that case. Um, one other thing I want to point you to is Matthew Iglesias uh, had a piece in his newsletter called The Slow Boring, called uh, Socialists or Anarchists. I think the explicit title is, or this is uh, about uh, the kind of a defense of institutions, right? He says, we need institutionalists. We need people out there. And he was particularly going after the sort of anti-institutional left, the sort of anarchist left, as he calls it. But I think this is equally, it's applicable to the anti-institutional right, which, you know, wants to tear down institutions, talks about things like deep state. And Iglesias said, quote, a fundamentally boring and uncool work of building effective state institutions increasingly is being undermined by a strain of thought that's so allergic to rules and enforcement that it can't make anything work, end quote. I think this is important because I think especially if you're on the left, you believe ostensibly in government and its capacity for change. And this is one of the things that frustrates me the most about certain politicians in places like New York, for example, is they don't really put their back into the effective functioning of government. And, you know, you look at things like, you know, the function of public housing in New York or the safety on the streets of New York or how well-performing our schools are or how expensive it is to do any kind of public works anymore. Government just doesn't work effectively even in, you know, high revenue blue cities and states. Look at uh, California, for example. And this is a real problem for progressives. Uh, if you believe in the power of government to improve people's lives, as as you know, aforementioned Andreessen said, prove the superior model. You know, create better government institutions, create schools that are so much more effective than private schools that spend the same amount of money per student. Right, uh, build wonderful public works uh, in an efficient manner. It shouldn't cost a gazillion dollars just to build a public restroom. Right. Uh, I was talking about this the other day, uh, I tweeted about this the other day, that I was sitting in a coffee shop and a homeless man entered uh, and they refused him to use the restroom. And so I bought him a coffee so that he would like be able to like, you know, adhere to the policy of the coffee shop and, and be able to use the restroom. I bought him a coffee just so he could use the restroom. And this is in New York City with the kind of tax base that it has and the kind of spending it has on infrastructure and government. We don't have 
public restrooms. You know, we did a whole segment on this. We can link to it in the show notes. And we, I had a spirited back and forth with Ricky over this. And where I said, I made like a pretty radical proposal where I said, in cities and states that don't have an adequate number of public restrooms, constitutionally, like it's almost a due process claim, um, people should be able to just go to the bathroom on the streets until they fix it. And I meant it. I think she thought I was joking. I'm not joking. I think that's what should happen until we fix this kind of stuff. So with that, I'm signing out from Arizona, shorter than normal episode. And I basically flew from India to New York. I was there for a few hours and now I'm in Arizona to give a talk. Uh, and then I'll be in LA and then DC. I'm going to be in DC for a debate at the American Enterprise Institute next week where I'll be debating education savings accounts. And I'll be taking the affirmative saying that Democrats should embrace education savings accounts. And I'll be debating my good friend, Greg Meyer, who's a state representative from North Carolina. And so we'll put a link to that in the show notes. If you live in DC, come out and see us. That should be, you know, it's really in the spirit of this podcast. I'm going to a Republican think tank to debate what Democrats should do. That's where I find myself in 2024. So uh, thank you very much, everybody. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe. Our voicemail is 3212 I have a long list of, of your voicemails to get to now that I'm back stateside. I really appreciate you all, and I'll talk to you next week. Bye.